Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. In today's episode, we welcome a guest who offers wisdom honed from business, philanthropic, and political leadership experience. His personal insight is refined by the countless conversations he's had with some of the top leaders in the world as the host of several Bloomberg-sponsored talk shows and the author of two best-selling books, including How to Lead. He is the co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the largest and most successful private equity firms in the world. I'm thrilled to welcome David Rubenstein. David, welcome to the Take Command podcast. It's so terrific to be with you today. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've got to tell you, I've been really looking forward to uh, this interview. As I had mentioned, the more I have read about you and learned about you and read what you've read, I know you've got so much great things to share with our audience today. You've achieved tremendous success in life. You co-founded one of the most successful private equity firms ever. You're a signer of the Giving Pledge. You are giving away a vast majority, if not ultimately all, of your wealth. You've written two best-selling books. There's a lot you have to share with our audience. David, you grew up in Baltimore. You're the only child of loving parents. Your mother was at home. Your father worked in the post office. Talk a little bit about your personal journey from the beginning and some of the things even you learned from your parents. My parents were not college or high school graduates. They were people who had married very young. My father went off to World War II, dropped out of high school, came back, met my mother, married her. She was 17. He was 20. He never got his high school degree. He worked in the post office, a a blue-collar worker, until he could retire. In hindsight, you would say, uh, how did you grow up in a situation where you didn't have a lot of money, modest house, not a lot of expenditures for frivolous kind of things? On the other hand was a great advantage because when you grow up without a lot of financial resources, you learn you have to do things on your own. And secondly, you really have an advantage if you have two parents who have unconditional love for you. I was their only child, so they obviously supported me. My own children have grown up in a much wealthier setting. So it's much more challenging for them to achieve something without somebody saying, well, your father helped you. I have no regrets about anything that happened in my childhood. I wish I was a greater athlete. I wish I was smarter. I wish I was better looking. I wish I was everything that I'm not. In the end, it worked out okay for me. What were some of the things that you felt like your parents taught you? What are some of the values that were important for your parents that you've really embodied in your life? Well, my mother used to say, don't brag about yourself. Don't fish for compliments. People are going to think you did a good job. Let them tell you that. Help other people. There are always going to be people less fortunate than you and try to help other people. Work hard. Hard work won't hurt you. And try to you know, obey the rules and not get in trouble. And I generally try to do that. So I took what I had and I did the best I could with it. Well, certainly you did. And part of that started with going to college on scholarship. You went to Duke for your undergraduate, University of Chicago for law school. Talk a little bit about those experiences, even some of the things that may have shaped you during that time that led to some of the things you did afterward. 
Well, I went to Duke because they gave me the biggest scholarship. I needed a scholarship. They gave me a scholarship. I can assure you it wasn't a basketball scholarship. Uh, I would say it was a very good university, but I didn't quite fit in. I was Jewish. It was a very, you had a Jewish quote in those days, very small number of African-Americans. It was a very Southern, I would say, waspy kind of place. I was mostly a student who studied a fair bit. I wasn't really that active in things. In fact, later I became chairman of the board of Duke University. I suspect a lot of people in my class said I didn't even know he was in the class. I never heard of the guy. So I got lucky later in life. I got out of it what I really wanted, which is learn how to study and and work hard and basically pay attention to the kind of things I was supposed to do to get into good law school. I wanted to go to law school, be a lawyer, go into government and so forth. And I did get a scholarship to go to law school at University of Chicago. And they showed me that I was not a great law school student. I was okay, but not good enough to be a Supreme Court clerk or first in my class. And that was good because I probably realized that I wasn't going to be a great lawyer and probably should do something else with my life. Was that something that got you starting to think about that? In other words, had you thought at one point that maybe you'd go into law, become a partner and do that for your career, and then you started to change your thinking or what happened there? I didn't have any money growing up. And in those days, there were no things like tech startups, hedge funds. Nobody aspired to be billionaires. I never met anybody who aspired to be a billionaire, even a multimillionaire. Just didn't see that in my environment. So people just wanted to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, maybe something like that. My mother wanted me to be a dentist. She thought that was a better thing than being a doctor or lawyer. I just wanted to go into politics. I was really enamored with President Kennedy and politics. And so that's what I wanted to do. And I thought if I ultimately go to practice law at the law firm in New York, where the man who wrote John Kennedy's speeches, Ted Sorensen, was that maybe some of his pixie dust would rub off on me and I would get a job ultimately in politics and work in the White House, as I did, not as the most senior person as he was, but as a young person, I was 27 years old and I got a job working in the Carter White House. That must have been an incredible experience and probably an inspiring one, especially given your interest in public service inspired by President Kennedy. What was that like? Well, when you're 27 years old, three years out of law school, you have an office in the West Wing. The President of the United States is walking out of the old office with you and you're getting on Marine One to go to Camp David. Your parents are sitting there saying, what happened? How did this happen? You know, sure, it's a great experience. And your president's calling you for advice from time to time. I wasn't the most senior aide, but I was the deputy to the president's domestic policy advisor. And I got to know the president reasonably well. But I thought we're going to get reelected and I'll be maybe the senior advisor in the second term. My boss would maybe become attorney general. Unfortunately, the voters heard of that and they voted us out of office. I think we obviously had the hostage problem and inflation. But I thought, OK, now I'll call up all the people who told me what a bright young lawyer I was and they're going to hire me. And none of them ever called me back because I had no power anymore. Nobody thought I really was a great lawyer. So I struggled for about six months to find a job. I didn't want to tell my mother that her only child was unemployable. So I said I had so many jobs that I didn't know which one to take. But eventually, as you may have seen through that, so I did get a job. I started practicing law pretty much at the bottom. And I realized that I really wasn't a good lawyer. I didn't really like what lawyers did that much in Washington. So I tried to do something else. And fortunately, I started a company that took off. You certainly did. And that's an understatement. Just to go back for a second, because one thing you talked about is that struggle, that six-month struggle. I mean, so... Many times, especially right now, in the midst of a pandemic, people are concerned, they're worried about the future and so forth. I mean, did you ever have any of those kinds of, you know, crises of thought? Were you very optimistic? How did you approach that struggle part of your life? Well, I wasn't really uh, into telling people how bad it was. So I didn't really run around and tell everybody, I'm in trouble, I don't have a job. And even though I went to a good college, a good law school, and I'm reasonably intelligent, I worked in the White House, nobody will hire me. So I didn't say, that. I just said, I'm looking around, not sure what I want to do. And I started out thinking I was going to be offered a partnership in a major law firm. Then I was happy to be an associate in a minor law firm, anything I could get. When I got a job practicing law, I realized that the law had become not a profession, but a business. 
how much money you were making was all they really talked about each month at the partnership meetings. So I kind of concluded that if I was going to be in business, maybe I should be in a better business than the law business. And I took a gamble. My mother said, David, you don't know anything about business. You got to keep your law license. So to honor her, I've kept my law license for the last 40 years in case I have to fall back on the law. You know, I took a gamble and it worked out. I had good partners and they knew what they were doing better than I did. And ultimately, we built a very large private equity firm. So let me ask you about Carlisle, because at the time you started Carlisle, as you've said, there weren't a lot of private equity firms. Even at that time, I don't think the term private equity really was existed. Uh, they talked about leveraged buyout firms and things like that. So what gave you the idea to start Carlisle? And what were some of the things you did in the beginning of that business that laid the seeds for its uh, ultimate success? Well, I was inspired by a man named Bill Simon. He had been the Secretary of Treasury under Gerald Ford. And when we went in the White House and government, uh, Bill Simon retired, as he uh, had been in the Ford administration. And he did a leverage buyout in the early 1980s of a company called Gibson Greeting Cards, where he put in roughly, I would say now it looks like about $330,000, and he made about $60 million in about 18 months. I didn't really know what a leverage buyout was, but it seemed like it was better than practicing law. So I went down the street to Bill Miller, who had been Secretary of Treasury in the Carter years, and said, look, your predecessor did a leverage buyout. I'm a lawyer. I'll do some legal work for you. Why don't we start a leverage buyout firm? And he kind of dismissed that being polite. He just didn't think he wanted to do that. So ultimately, I tried to find some other people that maybe closer to my age would do something like that. I found some people eventually and recruited them. And I told them that we had some money, but I was making that up a bit. I really meant to say I was going to get the money. And so when I got the couple people at this beginning, I went out to raise $5 million to get it started and it took about six months to get $5 million to get it off the ground. Then we built a firm that's now manages you know, over $225 billion, I think. So from very humble beginnings, it really has grown into something tremendous. What are some of the reasons that you feel that your firm was so successful when other firms weren't? When I started Carlisle, there were probably about 250 equivalent firms in the world. Now there may be 10,000 of these various kind of private equity, private firms. We became one of the largest because um, two things. One, I had partners who were pretty good at investing. So our track record turned out to be pretty good. And if you have a good track record, people will give you money. But secondly, I came up with an idea that doesn't seem brilliant and it's not going to win a Nobel Prize for it. But the idea was novel at the time. In those days, in the 80s, private equity firms were, they were buyout firms or venture firms, things like that. But they only did one thing and they only did it in their own country. I came up with the idea of having multiple disciplines, buyout, venture capital, real estate, debt, so forth, in one firm, do many different things, and then globalize it by having a team in Europe and Asia, Middle East, so forth. And so we globalized it and, in effect, helped institutionalize the business. It grew because the track record turned out to be pretty good. Obviously, Blackstone, KKR, Apollo have done similar kinds of things. So at the time that you came up with that idea, the firm was still relatively young. I mean, so it must have taken some time to really put that plan into place. What were the early years of Carlisle like? And, and how did you manage your people? Because I know one of the things you've talked about being proud of is the culture that you had and that the business continues to have. Well, in the early days, we were doing one deal at a time and it was hard to get deals, hard to raise the money for the deals. We didn't have a fund at the time. So we struggled a bit. Every deal was uh, life or death. If we didn't get the deal done, we'd probably be out of business or something because we'd spend all our money trying to get the deal. I would say that we had a culture of trying to be friendly towards each other. We hadn't worked in Wall Street, so we didn't have a kind of cutthroat mindset you often have in Wall Street. We wanted to be a collegial place. We trusted each other. We deferred to each other. There was no backstabbing or things like that. My two other partners and I have been partners for 33 years now. 
And that's very unusual. So it worked out pretty well because we let each other take the lead in their area of expertise. We didn't second guess. We didn't yell at each other. And we also didn't socialize that much. I often thought that if you work together, you socialize together, at some point you spend too much time with each other and it becomes combustible. So we basically have a good business relationship. It's worked out well. And I'm very happy with the culture that we once had, which is to have a relatively small firm, very friendly and things like that. How have you maintained that culture or some of those attributes over time as the firm has gone from small to so large? And what advice would you have for other businesses that are trying to really ensure that they've got great, strong, healthy cultures? Well, you have to make certain that people feel like they're valued. I know from reading Dale Carnegie's book that that's one of the things that he thought was very important. Make certain that people realize that they have opinions that are worth listening to. Make sure you ask people their opinions. Make sure you treat people with respect the so-called golden rule. And I think those are the kind of things we did. And as a result, people tended to like go to work at Carlisle. And for many years, we had people that were there 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and, you know, have employees for 30 years. That's not that easy. It's interesting. It's not, especially in this day and age when people come and go and so forth. And there are different views on leadership. It sounds like part of your view on leadership was around how do we value people? How do we help them feel appreciated? How do we really have that culture of respect, which in many ways, seems like it would be an obvious thing, but it's completely contrary to the way that we know many companies have operated and operate. When you become successful in anything in life, it can go to your head and you can get a big ego. And there you can also become a domineering personality and you don't really listen to people anymore. That's happened to some people in all walks of life. I think maybe because I realized I wasn't a superstar and I had a certain amount of humility, certainly they came out of the Carter administration. I just didn't have the kind of personality that would yell at people or treat people poorly. I really hate it when a boss yells at a subordinate or tries to make them feel that they're insignificant. I hate when I see that from time to time. And that was just not my style, not to yell at people or treat people with disrespect. And maybe I got that from my mother. Maybe I got it from observations of other people, but it's something that I think is important. You have to treat people with great deal of respect. Yeah, it's one thing that is true always, right? Technology changes, people change different things, but that feeling of respect and wanting to be appreciated is something that's just an innate human trait. Well, as Dale Carnegie pointed out in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, the Christian religion is really about the golden rule to some extent, and other religions, uh, Buddhist religion or other kinds of religions, all had the similar kind of philosophy of treating people with respect, listening to other people letting people feel empowered and making certain that people realize that they have potential and their potential is important to be listened to. That's the thing. He believed that every person has inherent greatness. I know you believe that too. It seems like, I mean, you've embodied that at Carlisle. You've also embodied that in this, what strikes me is just a driving personal mission of helping other people, really uh, an incredible level of generosity. You've donated hundreds of millions of dollars more, perhaps, to so many causes, colleges, medical um, improvement, and so forth. One of the things that I know you've said is that the highest, really, objective of mankind, the highest value is giving your time, your energy, your ideas to help other people improve their lives. Talk about that part of who you are, where that came from, and how that guides you today. When you have wealth and you get lucky and have wealth, what are you going to do with it? Well, you can build a pyramid like the pharaohs did, but there's no evidence that that really makes you live better in the afterlife and taking your possessions with you probably is not necessary. What most people do is they wait until they die and then they give it away typically to their children and their spouse. Nothing wrong with that. But I thought that I had more than enough money for my children. They didn't need to be given gigantic sums at the time of my death. And I decided I would do something more useful, which is to give it away while I was alive if I could 
and living a normal lifespan. And I tried to do that in many different areas of interest to me with the mottos of uh, trying to get something started that wouldn't otherwise get started, trying to finish something that wouldn't otherwise get finished, have something that was intellectually interesting to me so I would stay involved, and also something I would likely see some of the benefits in my lifetime. I tried to set a you know, role model for my children to do something similar. My mother didn't have any money. I gave her all the money she wanted, but she didn't want any money. And so what I noticed after she passed away a few years ago, that I get letters every day, dozens of letters from charitable organizations used to give money to. She used to give money to like six or 700 organizations. Anybody that send the letter in, she would send five or 10 or $15. She couldn't say no. Her view of trying to help people was something that rubbed off on me. It sounds like it did. You talked about growing up, your parents gave you a lot of love. It made you feel very secure and probably also instilled in you the spirit around humanity and giving back. It seems like that would have to be a part of what you learned from your parents. Giving back to society is really what life is all about. In other words, what's the point of becoming wealthy or famous or powerful if you're not helping other people? And how much better is life going to be if you just sit there with all your material possessions and say, look how rich I am, look how famous I am. Is life really going to be better that way for you? I don't think so. I think mostly you'll get more pleasure out of helping other people. When I give scholarships away or help other people in things in medical research or education areas, I think I feel much better about it. When people come up to me and say, well, you've done a good job for our country by doing this or that, I feel better about it than when somebody says, hey, you have a nice big home. That doesn't make me feel particularly good. Well, I've also noticed that a lot of what you've donated to have been around things that have been meant to inspire people. You bought a copy of one of the only remaining copies of the Magna Carta, which you then entrusted to, I believe, the Smithsonian so that other people could see it. You bought copies of the Declaration of Independence. And part of that, I think, has been around trying to inspire people to have a greater sense of history. Is that right? When I bought the Magna Carta, it was really because I thought it was going to leave the country. It was the only one in private hands. And I thought if it left the country, we wouldn't have the document that inspired the Declaration of Independence. So I put it on display actually at the National Archives and it'll stay there forever. And then I bought other documents like the Emancipation Proclamation, Declaration of Independence, things that really symbolize freedom, put them in places where people can see them in the hope that they'll learn more about history. And if they do so, we'll be a more informed and better society. You know, the theory about history is that if you don't learn the past, you're condemned to relive it in the future. So I want people to learn more about our history, our government. It's sad that we don't really teach civics that much anymore. American history is barely taught in, in many places anymore. You can graduate from any college in the United States without having taken an American history course. The people who take the immigration test every year to become a naturalized citizen, they have to pass a test, which 91% of them do, but most Americans can't pass that test, it turns out. And as a result, we really have a sad situation where we don't have the informed citizenry that we really should have to have an ideal democracy. Right, which is something that's really a requirement for a well-functioning democracy is for people to be knowledgeable, involved, and to have that sense of appreciation for how our system works. What advice might you have to other people around this topic of giving? And clearly, that's something that you've embraced. It's been important to you. I would think you might say everyone should try to give. Everyone should try to be charitable. But what advice would you have to people who are at various stages of their lives or their careers? I mean, should they start at any point and give something away? Or what advice might you have around that? And how do people pick things that might be good to support? Oh, look, everybody's not going to be Bill Gates and have that kind of fortune and so forth. What I try to tell people is that one, philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean rich people writing checks. So you can love humanity by helping with your time, your energy, your ideas. Your most valuable thing you have is your time. You can always make more money if you're inclined to make money. You can't make more time. So I tell people, try to find something that interests you 
Give your time, your energy, ideas, if you have money, you can give that too. Find something early in life that you feel is an important thing to you and make something of it. And it can be with you for the rest of your life. And maybe you'll inspire other people to do something as well. I've done some things later in life. I wish I had done more of this in my 20s or 30s or 40s. I really started relatively late. I do think that people should not just think that philanthropy is writing checks. It's not. It's helping other people with your time, your energy, your ideas. That's much more valuable. Well, certainly that's something that really anyone can do too, right? It is beyond just writing a check and you've shared and given your time, you're on more boards than probably anyone I know. So that's something we can all do is try to find some portion of our time to give back and help other people. You've written a best-selling book. I remember when I saw you on Bloomberg TV, this is a very early on and, and you were doing interviews. Then I saw you have the How to Lead book. You've interviewed some of the world's greatest leaders. Talk a little bit about how that book came to be and what are some of the things, if all these things, people you've interviewed, what are some of the key takeaways you've had? Vernon Jordan, who passed away recently, was the president of the Economic Club of Washington. And he asked me to succeed him. And I really wasn't even a member of the club. He said, all you have to do is get four business people to come in a year and speak. That's it. And it turned out that business people that came in that I was able to get were boring and people weren't really paying attention. So I decided what I tried to do is liven up a little bit because I noticed that when I asked a few questions of these business people after they're done their speech, I made people laugh by asking humorous questions. So I figured if I did a full interview, I could intersperse some humor in it, and it worked. And after five or six years of doing this, Bloomberg said, why don't we put it on television? And so I've been doing this television show for about six years now. And what I try to do is find people from all walks of life and try to get them to explain how they became a leader, where they came from, what difficulties they overcame. I took some of the best interviews from Jeff Bezos, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and so forth, put them in this book. And basically, the essence of it is to say that all of these people struggled. They all had failures. They all picked themselves up and persisted. They all have a certain degree of humility. They all basically people have learned how to communicate. And these are certain skills that I talk about being important in the beginning of the book. Are there certain things that you find are common ingredients, if you will? And you've talked about some of those things, but right. what are some of the things, especially for younger leaders, people who are trying to advance in their careers, their lives, if there was some advice you might give them, what might those well, two or three things be? Persistence is important. Having a vision of where you want to go, being able to communicate with other people. You can't be a leader without followers. You have to be able to communicate by writing well, or talking well, or by leading by example, maintaining your humility, being highly ethical. Many of the, the things that I learned, actually, I, I reread about recently in Dale Carnegie's book, because he has many of the ideas that I have. The ideas are that you should listen to other people, make other people feel valuable, make certain that you are always ethical, and you're basically uh, listening to people. Oprah Winfrey told me she's not a great interviewer, she's a great listener. And she said that what her real strength was being empathetic to the person she was interviewing. And that's important. And Dale Carnegie says in his book as well, that you should listen to people, let them talk, let them tell you what they think is important. And I also have to try that over the years. For example, when I go into meetings, I try to ask people a lot about their background so I can understand what they're thinking about and where they're coming from. And it helps in the conversation. It makes it more interesting. So I try, despite my talking on this show so much, try to let people talk a bit about themselves more than let me just talk about myself. 
you seem to have a really innate ability. And I would ask you that too, if your interviewing skills come from something just that natural ability, or if it's something that's developed, this issue of listening also goes to respect, right? I mean, it goes to the value that we have for people, but this issue of listening, is it something in your interviewing? Is it something that you can develop or is it something that you just are born with? It's a funny thing that nobody ever told me I was a great interviewer until recently. And then I started doing this. I'm saying to myself, geez, why didn't I do this when I was in my 20s? I'd have a different career, perhaps. What actually it is, is I think that the most important muscle you have is your brain and try to exercise it. And I always trying to learn. I came from modest circumstances. My parents got me a library card when I was six. I couldn't wait to take out the books each week, 12 I could take out. I love learning, love exercising my brain. And I guess I'm very curious. You could say I'm a busybody. I want to know too much about other people, but I just you know, like to know how people got where they got, what mistakes they made, what they learned, and it maybe it comes through. And I try to do some other things in my interviews. There have been some people, I won't mention their names, have had interview shows, but they didn't last very long. Why? Because their ego was so big that they talked over the person they were interviewing. You can't, you know, ask a question that goes over 10 minutes and let the person have one answer to reply, yes or no. You've got to let the person talk and you've got to listen to them. And when they say something, don't go into the next question you had, follow up what they said and play off of what they said. And I also find that if humor can work as well, because everybody likes some humor. So sometimes I try to intersperse some humor in it. Yeah, you've gotten many people to laugh with some of the comments. One of the nice things about listening to your book is you get to listen to the interviews themselves as you they were happening. They're written, of course, in the, in the book themselves. But you got Jeff Bezos to laugh. Uh, you got uh, Bill Gates to laugh and others. It's a nice, refreshing quality in an interview to keep it lively. People tell me I have a deadpan kind of way of doing it. I just ask this question, which is designed to elicit a humorous answer. But because I don't give away that by laughing or smiling in advance, it maybe makes it work better. So like if I ask Bill Gates, well, Bill, do you really think that you could have been more successful in life if you actually got a college degree? People get the point that... Uh, you know, it's kind of a humorous thing. So I try to ask people questions that maybe they don't normally get. So for example, I'll interview the CEO of General Motors and say, when somebody goes to buy a car and the person you're talking to has to go to the back and talk to their sales manager, what are they really doing in the back there talking to the sales manager? Are they really talking to the sales manager? Or they're just coming back and just telling you they talked to the sales manager. Or I ask the head of Exxon, when you go get gasoline, does it really make a difference if it's Exxon or Mobil or Shell? I mean, it really is the same stuff, right? and put them on a spot a little bit, obviously, somewhat humorously. So try to ask people questions they don't normally get in. Sometimes they can elicit humor. Well, everyone likes to laugh and everyone likes to be engaged. So it's a great thing to add into an interview. One of the things you've talked about, David, is the fact that you are curious and you like to learn and you're always trying to see what you can learn. If you look back at your life, you're at a point in your life right now, you can look back. What might you have told a younger David Rubenstein? Say you're back in your 20s. What lessons have you learned over the years that you'd want to have told yourself? In the end, I'm happy to have done many different things. And I tell people to experiment. Don't take a job out of college and think that's your job the rest of your life. I didn't start Carlisle until I was 37. I had many jobs before. So experiment. You have to find something you love. Nobody ever won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. You have to love it with a passion. I love private equity and building a business from scratch. I didn't love the practice of law. And so I tell my own children, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't, find something you really are passionate about that you love. And if you do that, you'll enjoy life a lot more. Well, you have three children. 
And they seem, from everything I can read and have learned about them, to enjoy what they do. Interestingly, it sounds like they've all got MBAs. They've all followed to some degree in their father's footsteps. I think they're all either directly or indirectly involved in private equity. So what would you say you did as a parent that might have uh, helped your children? Well, you could say I made a mistake. I should have at least one struggling artist, one poet. In the end, I tried to do things that would be a good role model, try to show them hard work was a good thing. Giving away money is a good thing. Being polite to people is a good thing. And that letting them fulfill their potential, I didn't force them to go in the investment world. I didn't force them to go to business school. They just seemed to gravitate towards it and try to let them fulfill their potential. For example, I have a daughter, my middle child has had some health issues, but she's found that by eating healthy food, she's healthier. So she's passionate about healthy food and has started a private equity firm that invests in healthy food. So she's combined her personal interest in healthy food with the investment business that she likes. And uh, it's worked out quite well for her. Yeah, it seems like she's in the right place at the right time as well, in terms of some of the things that she's doing. You are close to your children, from what I understand. What are some of the things you've learned from your kids? Hitting your kids over the head and telling them to do something generally doesn't work. When kids become older, you have to let them lead their own life. You can be a good role model, but you can't also push them to do something that they just don't want to do. And make sure that you don't live your life through them. In other words, sometimes parents that aren't happy with their lives, they try to lead their life through their children. Let your children find something they find important for them to do and try to help them if you can. Yeah, ultimately, kids seem like they rebel, right? When we try to push them in a certain direction and so forth. But for them to be able to uh, have their own sense of identity and not to feel like their parent is imposing on you've got to do this or whatnot, it's something that also demonstrates the love that we have for our kids is for them to find what they love to do. Jackie Kennedy once famously said, if you mess up raising your children, nothing else in life really matters. And when you think about it, she's right. Because in the end, what is the greatest legacy? The pyramids you build, the gifts you give away, who knows? But I think it's probably your children. In the end, they're going to be your living legacy, and they're going to be the most important thing you leave behind on the face of the earth. I think it's important to kind of remember that, and hopefully your children will think that you've done something useful but they can improve upon what you've done too. How did you balance building the firm that you built and the amount of work that you had with being a father because you did build a good relationship with your children? That work-life balance, how did you manage some of that? Well, I didn't play golf. That's probably helpful because that saves a lot of time. I traveled a lot. So I always tried when I was traveling to call them or to bring them something back when they were kids or a toy from overseas or something. But I tried always to be interested in what they were doing in college or graduate school and keep up with them intellectually, what they were learning. You know, when you have your kids and they're still talking to you in their 20s or 30s, I guess it works out okay. You know, I've always said you can't be completely happy as a parent as long as one of our children are are hurting. So I think the phrase is something like you're only as happy as your least happy child. And so if you have one child that's not happy, you're not going to be too happy no matter what the other children are doing. That's true. What does the future hold for you, David? What are some of the things that you're excited about moving forward? You realize when you turn a certain age that you've lived more than you're going to live. I don't have the genes that are going to get me to 100. I'm trying to get as many books done and podcasts done, interviews done, and uh, investments done that will keep me intellectually alive. So I am trying to do everything I can, not taking a lot of time off and doing things that I really enjoy. And so that's part of what life is about is finding things you can enjoy. And particularly in my age, I'm able to afford most things. I'm trying to find things that I can do that make my kids happy and make me happy and 
maybe give back to society. What are some of those things that you enjoy, David? What are some of the things you do when you're not working? When you get older in life, walking is a good thing. So I try to walk a couple miles a day. It doesn't stress the body that much. Meeting new people. I'm always interested in meeting new people and interviewing people and things like that. I like doing interviews. I love reading. I really just love reading books and, and keeping up with what's going on. I like investing and buying new technologies, investing in young people, backing them and so forth. I'm very happy with what, everything I'm doing. I just wish I had more time in the day. If you can figure that out, please let me know. It right. seems like there's never enough time, right, to do all the things that we want to do. What, what would you say to young, ambitious people who might want to follow in your path or a leadership path? Find out what is it that you want to get out of life? What makes you happy? Because you've got to do something that makes you happy. Just becoming wealthy or famous is, might not make you happy. So find something you really are, are happy in doing. I would also tell people that as you move forward in life, try to do but maybe a little bit later in life, which is to honor your parents. My parents died near the mid 80s, but they're a little bit unexpectedly. So I did some things to honor my parents with naming something after them or doing other things, but I probably could have done more and I'm still going to do more. It's easier to honor your parents while they're alive. When my father died uh, at 85, my mother lived another four years or so. I called her then as the only child every night and she looked forward to it. I said to myself, why didn't I call my mother every night when my father was alive? So, you know, I urge people to call your parents fairly regularly and try to see them when you can. And I think it's a great pleasure in life but also try to do something that you can say, I did this and your children will be proud of what you did. Your parents will be proud of what you did. Your friends will be proud of what you did with your life. Well, that's a great sense of perspective to think about it that way. I mean, to think about it in terms of limited time and trying to do things that people would be proud of. I mean, it ultimately helps us focus on what's really important to us. When I became wealthy by any normal standard, not by Bill Gates standards, but by normal human standards, very wealthy, my mother never, you know, she didn't seem to be that impressed with it. She knew I was making a lot of money, but she didn't care that much. When I started giving away a lot of money, she would call me and say, now I'm really proud of what you're doing. And after she passed away, I went through her scrapbooks and she had all the articles about my gifts and none of the articles about Carlisle's success. She didn't care about that. She cared more about giving away money and helping other people. And so by my doing what I did, I guess I made her happy. Well, it sounds like you did, and not only in helping other people, making her proud, also keeping in touch with her and giving, like you said, calling her, helping her know she was loved and appreciated. And I encourage all people, if you're fortunate to have your parents alive, to call them and tell them that there's a very famous uh, television ad done by Bear Bryant, a very famous Alabama football coach. And he did it one time for AT&T on Mother's Day. And he said, call your mother today. I can't do that anymore because his mother had passed away recently. But you can call your mother. And you know, obviously, that's the day that people do call them mother on Mother's Day. It just reminds you that, you know, when your parents are gone, you can't make up for that. It's really true. I can only say that uh, I FaceTime my mother every night. And it's always the highlight of my day. And like you said, I mean, I, I lost my father four years ago and wish I'd spent more time with my dad. But nobody will be as nice to you as your parents, probably. You're their legacy and they're going to be proud of whatever you do, even if it's not famous or something. They'll be proud of you. And I think it's good to, to kind of tell them thanks. Absolutely. Anyway, thank you for taking the time and thank you for sending me a copy of Dale Carnegie's book because I honestly had not read it before and now I've read it and now I got some of his lessons I'm going to start applying. Okay. Well, thank you so much, David. Again, it's a pleasure to have you here today and I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. 
check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.